This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It can take years for cases to work their way up to the Supreme Court. And then it typically takes at least three months between oral arguments and a final decision from the highest court in the land. But the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice? That timeline is up to the president and the Senate. In 2016, the Senate decided not to give President Barack Obama's nominee Merrick Garland a hearing. They deferred the process until after the 2016 election. But right now, they're moving at breakneck speed to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the seat held by the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Your thoughts on that may depend on your politics. But regardless, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett will change the ideological makeup of the court, solidifying a 6-3 conservative majority that could have lasting effects for the South. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm John Hammontree. And I'm R.L. Nave. Today we're talking about how the Supreme Court has shaped the South. The court has the power to expand our definition of civil rights or to limit it. Fred Smith is a professor of constitutional law at Emory University in Atlanta, and he walks us through the history of how the Supreme Court has influenced who has legal rights in the South, as well as the rest of America. But what happens when the Supreme Court rules against you? In the case of Lily Ledbetter, you keep pushing forward until change happens in the legislature. She started working at Goodyear Tire in Gatson, Alabama in 1979. 19 years later, she learned that she had been paid less than her male co-workers for years. They were doing the same job, but she was making less money. She sued and won in the lower courts. But the Supreme Court eventually ruled that because of the decision to pay her less had been made more than 180 days before she filed suit, she did not have grounds to sue, even if she didn't know about the decision until she received an anonymous note 19 years later. Ledbetter makes the case for why you should pay attention to the court and to the people who determine it. So let's get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Professor Fred Smith, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. The last few weeks, the conversations around the election have suddenly shifted to being conversations around the Supreme Court. The death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg has certainly thrown the court into disarray, and we are in the middle of a nomination and confirmation process for Amy Coney Barrett. Beyond that, sometimes we take for granted the way that the court has shaped the South. You know, if you look at the rights that we have for LGBT people, for racial minorities, for women in the South, you know, a lot of that can be traced back to Supreme Court, even more than to Congress or to state legislatures. Can you walk us through kind of the early days of landmark decisions that might have shaped the South? Sure. Uh, I know the nation continues to mourn the death of our Justice Ginsburg, even amid uh, a hotly contested uh, political race. And, and there's, a, of course, a nominee that the Senate is now considering. And so, yes, and more broadly, in terms of the role of the Supreme Court in the South, it's, it's interesting the way that you framed it in some respects, because in the instances that you describe in terms of LGBTQ rights, in terms of um, the rights of racial minorities, I think the way that we often think about the role of the Supreme Court is in terms of kind of an interventionist sort of role, right, where the South was doing something that uh, ran counter to the Constitution um, and uh, federal courts generally and the Supreme Court in particular uh, sometimes had to step in. And also the story that's often told uh, is a story of recalcitrance, a story of leaders in the South, governmental leaders kind of resisting federal courts. Segregation now, segregation forever, or much more recently, as folks in Alabama are more aware than anyone, the resistance that judge or then justice were more with respect to uh, the Ten Commandments uh, roughly 15 years ago, and, you know, and kind of a, you know, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals having to step in and so forth. And, and that actually, I, I clerked in Alabama, I clerked for Judge Myron Thompson. So I'm, I'm particularly familiar with that set, of, that set of events. I say all that to say that also, there's also a story, I think, also though, of the Supreme Court protecting the interests of the South, protecting interests like states' rights in particular, and and I think really to tell a more balanced story, one would have to one would have to really talk about both. Before we began, you mentioned Dred Scott, 
But I would also mention a case called Prague's versus Pennsylvania, which is a case that involved the fugitive slave clause. And it ruled that a Pennsylvania law that said that it was unlawful to use violence or force to uh, remove a runaway slave and take them back to the South. And the United States Supreme Court said that that Pennsylvania law was unconstitutional, um, that it violated Article 4 of the Constitution to have a law that would stand in the way of taking slaves back to the South. Dred Scott, as you know, is also a case about protecting Southern interests. In that instance, when the Supreme Court ruled that it was impossible for people of African descent to ever become citizens, Um, when they ruled that, in their words, the African race has no rights that the white man is bound to respect, a direct quote from the Dred Scott opinion, that was protecting an institution that was, of course, very important to the South. In the 1860s, after the Civil War, uh, you then get three new amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, The 13th Amendment eradicated slavery and also gave Congress the power to enforce that eradication of slavery. Um, So that is, Congress can pass legislation to sort of ensure that there's not kind of backsliding, that there wouldn't be backsliding. Uh, You have the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection under the law, guarantees due process, fundamental rights. Prior to the 14th Amendment, it actually was impossible for states, Southern or otherwise, to violate, say, the Bill of Rights. So that is to say, If a state wanted to violate someone's free speech rights or take away someone's right to bear arms or violate someone's Fourth Amendment rights and so forth, states were allowed to do that up until the 14th Amendment, which made fundamental rights broadly applicable to states across the country. And it also gave Congress power, the 14th Amendment gave Congress power to enforce those particular provisions, which is an important uh, expansion of congressional power that has resulted in kind of items like the Voting Rights Act, for example. And then almost immediately, I guess, the courts undermined that with a series of civil rights cases? Sure, right. What then happened, yes, is that the Supreme Court limited in particular Congress's power to enforce those particular amendments. And one of the ways that it did so is by saying that Congress can't get at private racial discrimination, or at least they can't rely on their power under the 14th Amendment um, to eradicate private discrimination or private uh, acts of violence. And so that, you know, to the extent that a lot of the the violence that was seen in the the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, to the extent that you couldn't always directly trace it to a government, uh, surely governments were involved. They were involved by looking the other way. Sometimes they government officials were the ones with the hoods and so forth, right? However, to the extent that you couldn't trace it to the government, the idea was that, well, the 14th Amendment is about state action, right? It's not about private action. And so that that operated as a fairly significant limitation on the ability to sort of get at private acts of discrimination or, or at least acts of discrimination that could be deemed private. I mean, obviously, the civil rights movement predated decisions like Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, the legal strategy was part of the civil rights movement, of course. But it's interesting to look back at some of these landmark cases in the 1950s and wonder if those cases hadn't happened, you know, if if the courts hadn't ruled for desegregation in the busing system, would we have had the freedom rides? If they hadn't ruled in Brown versus Board of Education, would we have had Little Rock and New Orleans and stand in the schoolhouse door in Alabama? Did those decisions set the stage for the congressional action that took place in the 1960s? Or is that too much of a Gordian knot to untie? No, I mean, that's absolutely right. So Michael Claremont, a Harvard law professor, has written that that's really kind of exactly what happened. It wasn't Brown itself that resulted, by the way, in desegregation in any meaningful sense. There was tremendous resistance and kind of, you know, there while some school districts were integrated through lawsuits, cases like Cooper versus Aaron and the Little Rock Nine, right? And President Eisenhower sending the National Guard and the like, that, that wasn't true for the vast majority of jurisdictions. So where I grew up in Athens, Georgia, this is a pretty common state of affairs. It wasn't until 1969 or thereabouts or 1970 um, where schools integrated in any meaningful sense. 
Alabama actually might have been ahead of the curve on this, actually, because of folks like Judge Frank Johnson. But my father went to school in Athens, Georgia. He was a senior in high school in 1970 or thereabouts before he ever attended a, an integrated school. My mother was, I believe, a sophomore in high school or juniors. And so in the, also in the late 1960s, early 1970s, before she ever attended a school with any white person. Uh, she grew up in Hepsibut, Georgia, which is just outside of Augusta. And so it wasn't Brown really that directly did it. And what Michael Claremont tells us is that it was the backlash to Brown and that seeing this really colossal juxtaposition on one hand, you know, people, again, like you say, freedom rides and people peacefully marching, uh, people like my former congressman, John Lewis, having his head bashed in and so forth and water hoses and dogs while people were peacefully protesting. And on the other hand, sort of seeing, you know, loud declarations of segregation now, segregation forever, but when more importantly, on the other side, seeing a great deal of violence on people's TV screens, you know, suggested that this was untenable and that something really meaningful needed to happen. Sparking congressional action, right? It kind of created the broad political will necessary to result in a Civil Rights Act of 1964, as well as ultimately a Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was much more controversial. For school desegregation in particular, what the 1964 law did is it gave the Department of Education the ability to stop giving federal funding to schools that were not meaningfully integrated. And so you kind of had this mechanism of integration that wasn't just lawsuits. And that's when in the late, late 1960s, that's why that's the moment you finally start to see meaningful integration in schools across the South such that, you know, by the 1970s or 80s, you can tell a story where schools in the South were more integrated than many places across the country. Um, today, it's very difficult, actually, though, for schools to continue to maintain integration because for a, n- a number of reasons. But one reason is that in a case called Parents Involved versus Seattle in 2007, the Supreme Court ruled that local school districts uh, can't voluntarily integrate, right? So they can't on their own say, we're going to make sure that there's integration in our various school districts because the argument goes that's considering race. And what Chief Justice Roberts said in Parents Involved is the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And he viewed it as discrimination for a school district in the South or otherwise to intentionally integrate their schools. So where I grew up, I went to very integrated schools in Clark County, Georgia, because that was intentional. Like the idea was, let's make sure that all our schools are integrated. After parents involved, that entirely went away. And so today, when you go to almost any school in Clark County, Georgia, you know, it's not uncommon to see schools that are extremely, extremely segregated. And so that's a role the Supreme Court played too, right? It's a story of intervention and it's a story of protection. Another outgrowth of of Brown and the Civil Rights Acts and Voting Rights Acts. In the 70s, we saw a lot of like lawsuits related to redistricting at the local level. You know, a lot of local city councils, you know, had at-large elected councils, school districts. Can you talk about those lawsuits and the role that like organizations like LDF played in litigating those? And as a result, I mean, now the South has the most black elected officials in the country, and it's largely because of the courts. Yeah, it is largely because of the courts, but it's also largely because of the Voting Rights Act. It's the courts enforcing the Voting Rights Act, especially in the instances that you're describing with respect to at-large districts. The the Voting Rights Act didn't outlaw all at-large districts. So at-large districts are sometimes perfectly permissible. Uh, Here, I live in Atlanta, and three of our city council folks are elected uh, at-large. What the Supreme Court said in a a case in the early 1980s called Thornburg, what you have to look to is whether or not the the district has a history of racially polarized voting. So that's one way to get at it. So if there's a situation in which through racially polarized voting, there is a significant identifiable group of people who will never meaningfully be able to participate in the political process and will never be able to elect a candidate of their choice, then that can violate a provision that's actually still a part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The reason why that has an outsized role in the South in particular is because the South has significantly more racially polarized voting than other places in the country. 
right? So in the 2016 election, there's really a handful, literally a handful of counties in the South where most white people voted for the Democrats. It's like Clark County, Georgia, where I grew up, Cab County, next to Atlanta. Not Atlanta. Fulton County, actually, it's not one of them. Cab County, Georgia, Clark County, Georgia, the New Orleans Parish, I think maybe Austin, Travis County. And it's it's a really, really, really small list. And so the, the kind of stark racially polarized voting in the South, and it didn't always map out in a partisan way, by the way. Sometimes what polarized voting meant was that Black people would vote for Black Democrats, white people would vote for white Democrats. And that's what it meant. It wasn't really partisan because everybody was a Democrat just about. In those instances, under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, at-large districts have been ruled to sometimes be in violation of Section 2. And the Supreme Court didn't actually play the biggest role in that. And that was really kind of very innovative and thoughtful. District Court judges, I'll give another shout to Judge Myron Thompson, who in Alabama in particular, for most, that's where a lot of the action was with respect to um, Section 2 suits breaking up at-large districts in a context where the net result was that Black people couldn't meaningfully participate in the political process. Another way that at-large districts can be unlawful is intentional. So if there's an intentional effort and you can prove that it's intentional. So if, if literally on the record someone says, the reason why I'm drawing this district and the reason I'm drawing it this way is to make sure that Black people can't vote or to make sure that white people can't vote or to make sure that Latinos can't vote. Right? That would be a violation, both of the Equal Protection Clause and of the Voting Rights Act. But that's rare. It's not to say it never happens. You know, In the early 1980s, there was a case here in Georgia where the head of the Senate Reapportionment Committee, Joe Mack Wilson, said on the record, I'm not going to draw any, and he said the N-word, districts. That was sufficient, right? That's evidence of discrimination. There's also a, um, a North Carolina case where the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals a few years ago, this is this is very recent history, ruled that the state legislature and the governor in that state, when they were drawing lines for redistricting, um, that they relied on race with the words of the court, surgical precision, and that it was the clearest case of race discrimination in drawing districts that that particular court could have imagined in this particular era that we're in today. Although that era was a few years ago. Now it feels like we're in an entirely different era, <laughs> like the summer. Like, <laughs> 2020 feels like its own era. Every day. Yeah. Every day, right? It's like, yeah, we're just like, oh, what? oh, we're in that era. Oh, okay. Oh, we're in the no debates because this is virtual era. We're in, the, yeah, <laughs> like literally every day. And by the time you air this, that's going to be old news. I mean, what's he talking about? Right. That's right. Either because there was a debate or because we just forgot we were on to talking about something entirely different that we can't even imagine <laughs> until we wake up and read the newspaper. Those of you listening, we talked a lot about Shelby County versus Holder in the first episode of this season in our conversation with Carol Anderson. If you want to learn more about that and you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and listen to it just to kind of put a fine point on it. And we've talked primarily about civil and, and voting rights with respect to the court. You know, it's probably also worth noting that the court has made landmark decisions that have affected women and LGBT communities, such as Roe versus Wade, of course, but also uh, Oberfell and Frontiero versus Richardson. But in general, it seems like the ideological center of the court can either be more progressive or more conservative than country as a whole. And as a result, they're either going to, you know, expand rights or contract them. Maybe that's overstating it, but we are kind of in an era right now where the court seems to be chipping away at or undermining a lot of the progressive legislation from the 1960s and 70s. And it seems likely, more likely than not, that we are going to have a 6-3 conservative majority on the court before the end of the year. What could that mean for cases that are coming through the pipeline now as it relates to the Voting Rights Act, as it relates to LGBT rights, as it relates to women's right to choose and things like that? Yeah, right. So it's interesting, right? I think sometimes there's a messaging that happens where the message is the Supreme Court is legislating from the bench and they're not just letting legislatures do their job. Instead, they're legislating from the bench. And I do want to take this moment to kind of intervene a bit with that particular construction because Shelby County is an example of the Supreme Court undoing Congress's work. Citizens United, ruling that corporations are people and essentially that money is speech, is an example of undoing Congress's work, 
when it comes to the McCain-Feingold Act. I mean, the parents involved example that I gave is an example of undoing the work of the school board of Seattle and of Jefferson County in Kentucky. That was the other defendant in that particular case as they were attempting to voluntarily integrate. In many of these instances, there's a very thin textual, let alone historical basis for these interventions. You know, again, Shelby County, the court had never announced this principle before. But in terms of what's what's at stake, you know, one kind of early sign, reading the tea leaves just from a few days ago, you know, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas made quite apparent that they at least, and it's hard to know how many justices there are for this, are interested in revisiting Obergefell and potentially undoing that particular decision. In that instance, that would push it, put it back to the states. If the ruling that they were advocating were to be the law, then states could eradicate same-sex marriage. Um, perhaps it's unclear what the Supreme Court would do with this, perhaps undoing marriages that are currently in existence, or perhaps they could rule in some other way that didn't undo those marriages. It's unclear how they would handle that. But if you had asked me two weeks ago, like even with a 6-3 court, is Obergefell safe? It wouldn't have been at the top of my list. <laughs> like I would have thought it was probably okay. And, and like that Roe was, would have been the bigger target. But the opinion that Justice Alito and Justice Thomas wrote, it was unnecessary. And by that, I simply mean this wasn't in the context of a, of a case where you, there's a majority opinion and there's a dissent and you have to state your reasons for what you're doing. They were denying hearing a case. They had chose not to hear a case. And that happens thousands and thousands. That happens like 8,000 times a year that the Supreme Court doesn't hear a case. And they don't write 8,000 times when they don't hear a case. They usually say nothing about it. And so for them to say, we're not hearing this case, but, and to not even say we're not hearing this case, but they said, we're not hearing this case. And we agree we shouldn't hear this case. So they weren't even dissenting. They were saying, we agree we shouldn't hear this case. But... This raises this issue about Obergefell. This raises this issue of the court's making with respect to that by saying that that was unconstitutional, that the Equal Protection Clause protects gay families, that they said that opened a Pandora's box of questions and therefore we should revisit Obergefell because the court did this. So they're interested. The Chief Justice was in the dissent in Obergefell as a 5-4 opinion. We don't know where Justice Gorsuch or Justice Kavanaugh are on this. We don't 100% know exactly where Judge Barrett is on this either. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's certainly something to watch. You know, there's lots of instances across the country of state and local governments trying to figure out how to protect democracy, right? So, you know, campaign finance reform, how do they restrict the amount of money that's kind of flooding the airwaves and flooding into politics and distorting the way that we view democracy. And I think on that score, you know, I think we'll see a ramping up of, of Citizens United in order to kind of stomp down on those particular efforts. In a lot of places, there are independent redistricting commissions. As of now, under a case from years ago, that's permissible under the Constitution, but it wasn't a unanimous opinion. I think we might expect to see those challenged again in order to kind of reopen partisan gerrymandering, which the Supreme Court has said is that there's no role for courts to, to deal with partisan gerrymandering. We said that two terms ago in a case called Ruscio. And so we might see kind of the undoing of these independent redistricting commissions and a hyper partisanship in the drawing of districts. You know, I think one of the biggest legacies ultimately of this chief justice will be the effect of the court. I won't say good or bad, but the effect of the court on democracy through things like campaign finance reform, through allowing partisan gerrymandering, through undoing Shelby County versus Holder. I think that will be one of the biggest stories because it helps explain, it doesn't entirely explain, but it helps explain how we are where we are as a country and as a nation, as a republic, and it's this feeling that the republic is slipping through our fingers. I don't think you can fully tell a comprehensive account of that without talking about the role uh, of the Supreme Court. And I think we'll see an escalation of that if there is, in fact, uh, a 6-3 court. Well, also, if, if the outcome of this election is contested, I'm wondering where the core fits in there, particularly if we see claims from a lot of different places around the country in different circuits and, you know, some of this stuff in state court. You know, I mean, the Constitution's pretty clear. We have to, we're supposed to inaugurate a president on January 20th. Does the court have a role in expediting this process to say, look, we realize that there are a lot of claims out there 
we're going to consider them all at once or just how is that going to play out if the, the outcome is contested? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, there's obviously, as you note, right, there's lots of different potential scenarios and it's hard to predict them, right? It could be 2000 again, where there's one state and there's and everything hangs in the balance because it's a super close election and, and the hanging chads or whatever, you know, whatever the new hanging chads are in 2020. That's so long ago that some of your, I mean, I'm not that old. I don't consider myself that old. But I think some of the young listeners, like if a 20 year old were listening to this, they'd be like, hanging chads, what on earth? <laughs> um, That's got to be one that like makes its way into like school curriculum, surely. I hope so. I hope so. So, you know, so it's kind of hard to know. I mean, I, I would imagine though that what we don't know at this moment is are we talking about an eight member court? This gives me anxiety to say the worst. I wish there could be a tie. I can barely bring myself to say those words <laughs> because because what a nightmare that would be, or perhaps not, or perhaps it's not a tie and they would have to resolve it. I think, I mean, what you saw in Bush versus Gore was the courts say, look, we're going to resolve this case, but don't rely, they literally say this in the opinion, they say, don't rely on anything we say in this case for any other case, right? So they say, this is this case is not a precedent, <laughs> Uh, and I've never, I'm not aware of any other case where the Supreme Court says in a, in a published opinion, this is not a precedent. We're just resolving this case, right? And and I think in the context of a presidential election, there is a lot of kind of pressure just to resolve it, such that there is a commander in chief ready to go, even if the reasoning is reasoning that the people who are subscribing to it know shouldn't be a precedent. I mean, to some extent, Trump, probably to a larger extent. Mitch McConnell have successfully reshaped the courts at almost every level over the last few years. You know, as we look back at this kind of broad history that we've been talking through in this episode, a key component for progressive activists, whether it's for racial minorities, for LGBT or or women, has been a legal strategy. Even now in states like Alabama, whatever reforms we're seeing in our prison system are happening through lawsuits from groups like Equal Justice Initiative and the SPLC. They're not happening through the legislature. It seems like if the courts have overwhelmingly shifted, that that calculus may have to change for activist groups in the South, that the legal strategy may not be as viable as maybe trying to flip states like South Carolina or Georgia. What do you see kind of, you know, the next couple of decades, how it plays out? There's more courts than federal courts, right? So there are state courts and, you know, and in in places like North Carolina, you know, I think one thing that we'll see potentially is more action in the state courts instead of relying exclusively on the federal courts as the composition of the federal courts changes, especially if you have a situation like, let's say that Vice President Biden becomes the president and let's say the Democrats don't win the Senate, right? It's not impossible to imagine Republicans essentially blocking every single person he attempts to appoint because we're just all the old norms. They, they just feel it, feel it feels like every time like we're at a like a new normal where the old norms are gone, like even those new norms, they, they go very quickly. They might say, hey, well, people knew people knew that courts were on the ballot and they elected a Republican Senate. So no judges for you. And so you can you can imagine a situation in which it's like it's not even that it, there's even a meaningful chance for it to even out that it just really kind of locks in where one side has a lot of judges and the other side isn't even able to put any forward. And so so to your point, you know, in that world, does that mean that civil rights groups should not look at all to the courts or should look much less to the courts? I'm on the board of a civil rights organization. And and one of the things that I've found is that there have been judges appointed by Trump, people call them Trump judges, but they're, they're federal judges who happen to be appointed by this particular president who've been very receptive to various civil rights claims. Right here in Georgia, there's a couple that I had the pleasure of meeting recently, gay married couple, both American citizens. Their child was born abroad. They were born in outside of London to a surrogate. And the Trump administration said that the child couldn't be a citizen, couldn't get a passport and could not be a citizen she was born abroad. There's a number of couples actually across the country that were in this particular situation where their daughter, until uh, their daughter was an undocumented immigrant. I met their daughter, Simone, adorable, running around like a, had no, had no, and had no idea that like she was just in, in perpetual peril. Both of these parents were American citizens, but the Trump administration ruled that when it came to same sex couples, their children, if they were born abroad, could not be American citizens. In that particular case, it was a judge who was appointed by Trump, by President Trump, who said that is unconstitutional. That is unlawful. You cannot do that. 
I, I say that I tell that story to say that the mere fact someone is appointed by President Trump doesn't mean that they fully share his perspective on rule of law or decorum or basic norms of decency. The court is changing. We don't know what those changes will mean necessarily, but Professor Fred Smith gave us a pretty good understanding of the court's power. After the break, Lily Ledbetter shares her story about a moment when the court ruled against her and what she did next. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else, and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Lily Ledbetter, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. I always welcome an opportunity to share my story. You know, I think you are a household name for a large segment of the United States population, but maybe in Alabama, not everybody knows your full story. Maybe in other parts of the South, not everybody knows your full story. So let's start at the beginning. In 1979, you started working for Goodyear Tire in Gadsden, Alabama. And why don't you take it from there? That's right. I left a very good job. I was a district manager for H&R Block, managing 16 locations at the time. But Goodyear Gadsden had built the radial tower division, and I knew the radial towers was the way of the future. Plus, they had run a big article in the business magazine about their new management philosophy and techniques and how they were going to treat women and minorities and bring them up in the workforce and also in their managerial positions. So I felt like that that was a great opportunity for me right here on my home turf to get a a job that might be better for my future. So I went to work for Goodyear February 5th, 1979. And 19 years later, you received, I believe, an anonymous note that informed you that you were making less money than your male counterparts. I did. That was so heart-wrenching. It was just devastating. I can't tell you how desperate I felt at the time I saw that note because immediately I knew it was correct. Mine was $3,727, which is an odd amount. And the other guys, the three that had the opposite shifts from me, theirs was the same. It was an odd amount. But theirs was anywhere from over 6000 basic pay to just under. And that was not including overtime. We were paid time and half, double and triple, because they did not have people to fill in for us. And when I saw that note, I first immediately thought about, oh, my, how many dollars have I lost? How much has my family done without? And the next thought that went through my mind, it started doing the math and calculating overtime pay. A lot of those weeks, especially the couple of months, I worked seven nights a week, 12-hour shifts for two months straight, two months straight without a night off because there was no one else to fill in. My peer had a heart attack. He was out. When he took his vacation, I worked my shift and his too. So it was a lot of overtime, a lot of overtime. But I never complained because, you know, it was giving me extra money to help pay my college tuition for my children and my home mortgage and try to get saved for retirement. But that was the next thing I thought of besides the money I had lost just in basic pay. But it was the overtime money. How on earth? could this company do an employee that's so dedicated to them, an enthusiastic worker, do one that way? And what really confused me, they had government contracts from the day I went to work until the day I retired. And I just knew that the federal government would not be letting out these major, major big dollar contracts without checking or getting some verification 
but I found out they didn't. Can you describe what the job was and what your male counterparts who were making two, three, four times as much money, what they were doing compared to what you were doing? Was it the same job? Same identical job, just a different shift. Goodyear ran seven days, seven nights a week, A, B, C, D. And we had to swing off and on so that we could cover all of the hours. And I had the same exact job as one of the other fellows, and the same job as all three of them because we had the same spot. We had the same machinery. We just had different people, of course, but we ran the same department on our shift, 12 hours every shift. And I had been there then 19 years. In the early 90s, they handpicked four managers to start up a light truck radio division at Gadsden, along with their tires for automobiles and the other tires. They were going to start a light truck radio division. And I was one of those four that they, I was picked simply because they told me it was the way I managed my people. They still wanted to work like a team effort. And then in 1996, my boss told me I had won the top performance award that year based on my production, my quality, my absentee, my housekeeping, all that goes into being a managerial in a production department in the plant and gave me a nice raise. But I still, I didn't know, is this what they're getting? Is this more? Is this less? And we did not know when they gave out raises because they were not consistent for the management positions. You were highly praised, highly decorated, and yet you get this anonymous note. You still find out that you are making less than your male counterparts. It seems easy for somebody in your situation nearing retirement to, to be frustrated, but to ultimately just say, well, that's the way of the world and walk away. You didn't do that. What did you do immediately after finding out that you were making less money? I found out, of course, prior to a shift beginning, but I finally got my shift started, made it through the night. But halfway through my shift, suddenly occurred to me, this is not only my support for my family today and my retirement for the future, but it's my retirement. It's my 401k. It's my contributory retirement. And it's my Social Security. Everything I draw today is dependent on what I was earning. And I thought, this is against the law. Because I saw President John F. Kennedy when he signed the Equal Pay Law in 1963. President Johnson signed Title VII in 1964, which added more strength. I knew that I had been mistreated simply because I was a female. And I couldn't let it go. I told my family the next morning when I arrived home, I must file a charge with the Equal Employment Commission unless you object. And I'll tell you, and I'll warn you up front, if I start, we will be in this for at least eight years. How did you know eight years would be how long it could take? And it wound up taking longer. It did. Because I read the papers. I keep up with cases. I hear the news. I know these type cases. Companies... They have the big money. They can spend you out, they can wear you out, and they'll wait you out. And they will hope you'll finally give up and go away. But I could not let it go. I just couldn't let it go. So I found, I went to Equal Employment Commission, filed a charge. I was still working and continued to work up until November the 1st of 1998. I filed the charge in March, I believe. The EOC called me after a few months and said, you've got one of the best cases we've ever seen. If you'll get your own attorney, you probably can get to federal trial. So I found a young attorney with a large firm in Birmingham, Alabama, John Goldfarb. He taught my case on a contingent basis because people like me in middle management, raising a family, I had to tell him up front, I do not have a lot of money. So he taught my case on a contingent basis, which his firm would have gotten 50% of whatever I got. I would have been happy because basically, you know, I knew going into that, when I filed that charge, I was just trying to right a wrong. I knew basically I'd never see a dime. Most people in these type cases do not. That's a sad case too. The only 
time, I see people really getting very much money from a case that they have filed a charge and followed through. It's when they offer a settlement to hush it down, bury it, and let's don't tell anybody, which is good for the company. It's not bad publicity. What was the response that you received from your coworkers and upper management at Goodyear after filing this complaint? And then did Goodyear ever offer you a settlement? Goodyear did finally offer one. And when I filed the charge with the EEOC, they had a firm out of Texas call me and offer me $10,000 to drop the charge. I thought about it and I said, I'll get back with you. And I took the person's number. I, I did what the judge did at my trial. Because when you file for equal pay, you can only go back two years. No matter how many years you've worked, two years is as far back as you can go. So I knew that what the court would do, it wouldn't be what I rightfully should have had, but it would be based on previous cases. They would take the lowest paid person where I work and calculate my two years back pay just on base pay. Well, I did the same thing. That was 30000 per year. I called him back. I said, I'll drop the charge for $60,000 and not say a word about the case to anyone. I never heard from them. They took the information and I never heard. But that was all right because $60,000 really wasn't right either. But that was, I knew that that would save a lot of heartache, a lot of time and effort down the road on me and my family. These cases are extremely hard. I believe you initially won your suit and it was later overturned by higher courts. How many levels of court did it go through and what was the verdict at each stage of the way? The federal court in my home county of Anniston, Alabama, five men and two women, they gave me an award of $3.8 million. Wow. $3.8 and I had a wonderful judge. I had Judge U.W. Clement. He was really fair. He was fair. He made sure everything was down the line. In fact, during the trial, he asked the Goodyear representative for my personnel file. They couldn't furnish it. They said they thought they burned them, getting ready to shut that plant. And he said, let me explain the law to you attorneys. Of course, he did, but it didn't matter. They still did not have my file. But he had to explain to the courtroom before we left that day that I was only entitled to 300000 My $3 million suddenly dropped to $300,000. So I left the courtroom that Friday afternoon with a verdict of $360,000, which it still, you know, just hearing the verdict, we find in the plaintiff's favor, I wanted to stand up and shout because these seven people, they get it. They see it. They saw how many dollars I had done without. And it was hard work. It was especially hard, not more so on a woman than a man, but it was just hard work. But if you liked it, like I did, it was great. It was great work. And I did good. I did well. I worked there for 19 years and 10 months and left on my own accord. But you know, when I got to Washington and started testifying in the House and in the Senate. They kept bringing up, the opposition did. Why? Well, she wasn't any good. Goodyear said she wasn't a good employee. And that's what they told the media. But you have to know, and you live in Alabama, we're an Atwell state, and Goodyear kept me for 19 years and 10 months. They didn't let me go. And it was like one of the senators from California said, she said, when I was a manager and I had poor employees, I got rid of them. And all they had to have done if I was a poor employee is to tell me to go home. No reason. Right. And it's clear that they had given you awards and promoted you to new teams and things like that. So the jury says that you deserve $3.8 million. And the judge says, well, because of the way the law works, we can't give her that much. We can only give her $360,000. It's a bittersweet victory. But I imagine Goodyear then immediately files an appeal and it goes up to the next level of court. It went to the 11th Circuit. And uh, as I've traveled the country and especially to Washington a lot and to a lot of the big law schools around the nation, they have all told me that you had the worst court 
to be heard in. But you know, the EEOC people, they wrote briefs and supported my case from the time I filed that charge. They went to the 11th Circuit with my attorneys and stood on my side and argued for my case with my attorneys. But when we got to Washington, D.C. in the Supreme Court, they took Goodyear's side and went on the other side. Hmm. Do you know why? Well, what I heard in court, and this may not be verbatim by word, but it was something to the effect, we can't let this case go forward. Why, if we do, women will be coming out of the woodwork to file charges to get their big sum of money. Well, first of all, women, most of them don't want to spend eight, nine, ten, and I've heard of cases going 16 years waiting, trying to get some money that they've already earned. They don't want to go through that. And you find out people say not nice things to you sometimes. And so you find out exactly where you stand with your neighbors and your community and your church. So you really have to be very careful when you make a decision. You have to know, understand what you're getting into. I did. I knew what it would be like. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but I could not let it go. But when we got to Washington and that government agency took the other side and to a lot of opposition against the Ledbetter bill was saying, well, if we do that, are these women, well, they'll work all their life and then they'll file to get a big payoff. Well, you still can only go back two years. That's not changed. I don't care if you work 40 years and you file wanting a difference in your pay, two years is all the law allows. And I can tell you another sad story. There was nothing in it to pick up your benefits, your overtime pay, or any lost wages. And there goes your retirements. Your retirements all are extremely low simply because you're not paid fairly. You mentioned that if you move forward with a case like this, you come to find out exactly you know, where you stand with your community and your church and your peers. It sounded like that might have been personal. What did you learn about how your community responded to this case? My co-workers, the ones who were really friends of mine, would call me at home or if they saw me out somewhere in public and they thought they could get by with not being seen speaking to me, they would give me a pat on the back and tell me that they was in, the, in my corner, but they couldn't help me. But in the plant, it was like I had a bad disease. If I met someone in the hall, they'd go the other way. If I went in the ladies' restroom, some lady was in there, she'd leave immediately where she was ready to go or not. And they just would not have anything. They wouldn't speak to you. They wouldn't have anything to do with you because they were told their job security depended on them behaving that way. I understood. I understood. And I have a strong, thick disposition. I knew going into management, you take a lot in management, which is totally unnecessary, but sometimes you have to do it. You've got to have a thick skin. You've got to have a family that stands behind you. Now, my family all supported me. They were with me. My husband was with me right up until his death in December of 08. And he went through four cancer surgeries and he never asked me to give up. In fact, one of them, they took the left side of his face off and grafted his skin. He never any time ever asked me to give it up. And he stayed with me all the way through. He knew the bill would pass and he supported me. I left and went to the Supreme Court to hear that case. And he had just been out of the hospital about 10 days with that skin, that big place removed on his face and skin grafted. Wow. So it goes from the 11th Circuit up to the Supreme Court, and ultimately the Supreme Court rules against you. Well, I really had hopes. When you're in anything like this, you never, never give up hope. You always have hope right to the bitter end, and then you look for the good out of what you got. There's always got to be some good in it, too. But I never gave up hope. I continued to hope and believe that my fates would carry me through and somehow they would understand, like the local federal court. But they didn't. Sandra Day O'Connor had retired. She had left due to her husband's illness. 
she was no longer there. So only Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the only female. And Alito had just gone on the bench, and so had Chief Justice Roberts. Well, when I testified before Ted Kennedy's committee in Washington, they had put together charts on both of those fellows, what they said in confirmation and how they had ruled since they had been on the Supreme Court. They did not even appear to be the same person. I mean, it was so far out in left field because I remember distinctly Chief Justice Roberts said in his confirmation hearing, he would call balls and strikes and he would follow the precedent interpretations of the law. And all the cases like mine before had gone on through because it was based on paycheck accrual rule. If you were still getting a check, <clears throat> like I was, you could still file a charge. And that's what I did. That's what we've got it secure today. But what they nitpicked and found a little technicality somewhere in the Title Seven. And I'm not a lawyer, I should be, but I can't explain it exact. But they found some way, and Alito said, oh, she was discriminated against. Her problem, she waited too long. But Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg read her dissent loud and clear. They said the words would bounce off the walls because it was so quiet. And she said, it's up to Congress to change this injustice back. She said, it is not right. She said, Congress, the ball is in your court. She said, this is not right. These people have no idea what they're doing. So the ball went immediately over to the House. And the Education and Labor Committee, chaired by Congressman George Miller from California, started working on the bill. And that's the committee that decided to name it after me. I was told by the committee that they hoped that it would also cover me in arrears at my award, but my lawyers told me immediately, that sounds wonderful, but we've never known that to work out. And I accepted that. There was no, I still never had gotten any hope about the money because when I needed that money was when I, we were struggling as a young family. Of course, I need it today too. My retirements would be really a whole lot better and life would be much easier if I could have had gotten my retirements up because I've been retired from Goodyear now since 1998 and they've saved a lot of money or whoever did with the retirement. And the same thing with Social Security. Everything in my 401k went by. So it is, it's a shame. So you were offered 10000 and at one point awarded as much as 3.8 that was dropped down to 300000 But then at the end of this long process, other than a bill bearing your name, you did not have any financial reward to show for it. No, no, I did not. And I, I do a lot of actually just pro bono work that I pick and choose what I do. But I also do a lot of speeches, which I get paid for. Not a whole lot. Not like what some of the people in the, that have really big names get paid. But it helps me to stay independent. And when I have to have a roof or I have to have something. And a lot of times people will step up. If they hear me say something that I'm in trouble about or I need, they'll send me or help, help donate the money to take care of it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg puts the ball in the court of Congress. Had you already started kind of a legislative push before that, or did that start after the Supreme Court verdict? That, that started immediately. I didn't have time to start anything, but I will share this. When the attorney called, and my main attorney, Mr. Goldfarb, he and his family was on the beach, I think in Orange Beach, on vacation, and uh, when he got the call, and so the Birmingham attorney, Mike Quinn, gave me the call, and he said, don't worry about the media. We'll handle it. I'm not going to hide the rest of my life. I'm not embarrassed. I didn't make that ruling. They were the ones that messed up. And I had a good case, and this belongs to a lot of people. So when NBC called that day, I said, come on up. I live at 12.06. CNN called the next day. They came on to my home. Norman Lear, he called and sent his crew in from Washington. And they came in here with um, freelance people out of Birmingham and crews out of Washington, and we made video after video all day long to be shown on YouTube to help people make their decisions and not let what happened to Lily Ledbetter 
happened to them because once that verdict was out, it was no longer about me. It was about you and your family, your sister, your mother, and maybe your wife. It's about your family. It's not about me. And this whole country is suffering. Once that bill was signed in Washington in uh, January of 2009, the first invitation I had was Rome, Italy. The Italian ministries paid for me and the Washington attorney to travel to Italy for six days and talk about my case and share the story. Wow. Well, and, and you have been celebrated throughout the world, but it took a little longer than maybe would have been expected to be celebrated in your home state of Alabama. And it also took Alabama a little longer to pass an Equal Pay Act. What is left to be done? You know, you talked about how the law still only lets women go back two years of back pay. But what do you see as the big hurdles right now for women's equality in the workforce and in general? Paycheck fairness. That that's bill has been in Washington for a lot of years. And when I heard about it, when I got there talking about the Ledbetter bill, in my case, if that had been on the books back in 1998, I would have found out exactly how much I was making and exactly what was wrong with my pay. And I'd want to know, hey, hey, boss, what can I do? I've got to get this up because the last few years income is what they base the retirement on. I would have known. But Goodyear told me when I went to work for them, if you discuss your pay, you will not have a job. No one ever discussed their pay. Now, I'm sure some of those guys that was buddy-buddy talked about theirs. I'm sure they did. But I never got any information. No one ever told me anything. This past year, I believe Goodyear announced that it would be closing its plant for good. I imagine that has to be bittersweet for you. You did work there for 19 years, but obviously have a lot of pain associated with the place. How, how do you feel about that anchor of the community closing? I'm sad because it was a good plant. They had added so much in Gadsden. The radial plant where the radial tires were built, they told me it was a 12-inch concrete floor. It was most of it. Some of it was air conditioned. Some of it was not but it basically stayed clean. It was a wonderful manufacturing environment to work in. Now the old plant, that plant was built in 1929 and they'd had a lot of, I heard a lot of stories that occurred before the union came in. And I will say this, the steel workers, men and women supported me and they helped me a lot. In fact, that's how I did so well for my 19 years and 10 months because I had wonderful union representatives everywhere I worked and I always treated people fairly and equitably and they had a contract book which I read and tried to understand if I had a question about it I would go to the union rep or ask the division chairman but I adhered to that contract because that was their bible so to speak to work with. It looks like the Supreme Court is going to be changing in its composition in the next couple of weeks. What's your take on what's happening right now? It's uh, not changing for the better. And when I was coming along through the years and voting for presidents, I'd hear occasionally somebody point out that when we elected a president, they might be appointing a Supreme Court justice. But I never gave it much thought because I never had any idea that Lily Ledbetter would end up in the Supreme Court with a case no thoughts. Now, I'm very careful who I vote for. I know who they stand for. I know where they've been. I know what their job is. I don't necessarily depend on what's in the writings or in the articles. I depend on where's that person been, what kind of track record, how do their um, work co-workers and their family get along with them, because that tells you a lot about an individual. Now, if they're liked, that doesn't bother me or not. It, what bothers me is their knowledge and how they treat people. I had the great opportunity to testify on behalf of Elena Kagan. I was the first normal citizen to testify on her behalf. And that was a great opportunity. And it was one I didn't take lightly. I researched her. I've checked out everybody I could find at Harvard Law and other places that she had held her positions and found out everything I could before I endorsed her. And she has lived up to everything that I expected. 
and you just stated that in the next couple of weeks, we should not, we should not be confirming anyone in two weeks. That's just too quick, especially with the election going on. People need to think about this because whoever, if this lady is appointed, she will be on that page the rest of her life until she dies or chooses to leave on her own. You can't fire her. You can't get rid of her. You don't do any job evaluations. She's there for the rest of her life. This is scary. You need people who know and think about families. Just like today, what little I heard this morning, they're talking about the health care. And then I live in a state, and you do, that health care in this state is wishy-washy. Some people have it. Some people don't. And those who don't, they're suffering. And most of them are children. It scares me. And that's why I get up every day and hope that I can make a difference in somebody's life to say, you know, she, she made me think. I need to think about what I'm doing with this vote. And I've had so many people this year to give me one reason why they want to vote against someone. I said, look, you better look at the whole package. Just one negative item just doesn't get it from me. I've, I said, I don't agree with everybody. I've never agreed with everybody. And that's just human nature. We don't. You don't at home. You don't in Washington. And you don't in the state of Alabama. But we have to pick and choose what takes care of our families. This is a family affair. It's serious. The first piece of legislation Barack Obama signed off on as president was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. Not bad for a determined woman from Jacksonville, Alabama. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave. It was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like the show, please share it with your friends, your family, even your arch nemesis. Who knows, maybe these conversations will be the things that finally bring you together. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us. 